Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game. I'm one of your hosts, DM Neil, aka Jote Pontiac, and today we have a very great guest, and it is David Gallagher, who has done a ton, a ton of different things. You've definitely experienced his work at one point or another, and Chris and I talk about empires with him. Before that, though, if you are a patron supporter of gold or higher, you can keep an eye out because once again, we bring up the topic of the quiet year and I had the privilege of playing a game similar called Kingdom and I've never released the audio, but um, there are definitely some names you know, so keep an eye out on the Patreon feed for the first part of that. But with that, let's head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? Looks like meat back on the menu, boys. So today on The Meat, we are joined by David Gallagher, who does a whole host of things. He is a game designer, writer of Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon, Only Living Girl, High Moon, and Green Lantern. He has founded the storytelling studio Bottle Lightning, and last but not least, he is the host of For the Love of Comics. David, thanks for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So, David, you obviously have a ton of stuff that you do um, in a, on a regular basis. But tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe how you got into writing the things that you write, into game design, into, you know, wh- what makes up David? Tell us just a little bit about yourself. That is that is vast. So <laughs> I'm going to do my best. So um, in a nutshell, I grew up in a military family. I was born in Hawaii. Uh, we traveled around a lot. I ended up with three younger brothers. We ended up reading comics together, playing role-playing games together, and, and having a general good time of things. For my undergraduate degree, I studied theater and neuroscience and uh, majored in the latter at Hood College. I eventually then decided, uh, like when I was getting my graduate degree, that I wanted to uh, study comic books, which seemed very unusual for everybody at the time. 20 years ago, they're like, what? We don't have a program to do that. <laughs> so, um, But anyway, I made it work. I went on to intern for Marvel Comics. Uh, after I drew my resume as like a six panel comic strip and faxed it to them. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, nice. Yeah. I, and I worked there off and on for three years. And then I really started like dipping my feet into like really cool, fun um, comic book stuff. So I think my first comic was uh, yours truly Johnny Dollar based on an old time radio serial. But then I found myself really diving my toes into comics about world building and stuff that I was really familiar with because I had my brothers and I used to play so many role playing games and I still to this day play role playing games. Right after Johnny Dollar, my first comic following up on that was Vampire the Masquerade. So working in that universe and being familiar with that world and the way they built their tribes like the Sabat and the Camarilla and then later like all the tribes in Werewolf the Apocalypse that really sort of set my world building brain into full gear. I mean I played so many Palladium role-playing games back in the day 
Nice. Right. So like I thought about like I mean and 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 palladium system is still like a love of mine as you know especially when you're talking palladium fantasy or riffs where you've got like the woven empire, you've got the changelings, you've got the minotaur culture, you've got the dwarves, you've got the elves, you've got the troglodytes, you've got all these different like racial classes and and the environments they live in. And one of the things I always loved was that the woven empire was so heavily based on like the Roman empire, you know, and they had everything down from like the shields to the weapons, to the carvings that they had on the different castles and buildings. So, you know, those sorts of things like working on the vampire, the masquerade comic uh, reminded me of, of how much I love working in these role playing game worlds. And so much of the writing that I do is inspired by role-playing games. So even when a few years later, after the vampire comic came out, I ended up working on High Moon for DC Comics, which is like this werewolf Western. And so much of what I loved about building worlds and building empires, you know, or, or really folded itself nicely into High Moon, where I was thinking about the pre-industrial world. You know, where I was thinking about, well, what did Oklahoma look like? And what did Texas look like? And what did Arizona look like? You know, before, you know, as we're transitioning from the Gilded Age to the Industrial Age, that was, that was really fascinating. And I brought some of those, some of that thinking into, uh, you know, uh, Deadlands, which is another Western comic that I wrote for Image, um, but it was based on the, the pinnacle role-playing game. You know, and so I was able to take a lot of these ideas and really sort of think really hard on like, well, what does a, when you have magic or technology or science, what does that look like and how does it affect the way a society builds itself? So that was really interesting. So I went to work from Deadlands to The Only Living Boy, which is like this action adventure, Johnny Quest meets Thundar the Barbarian. Islanded Dr. Moreau kind of young adult children's fantasy. And I took so much of the lessons that I learned from Palladium and from Vampire and from Deadlands and even from the, my, my love of the old Marvel comics uh, with like Wakanda and, and Latveria and the Savage Land. Took all that stuff and all of those influences um, and even like a little bit of like a John Carter on Mars and War of the Worlds and stuff like that and, and swept it all together to put only living boy together which is like the story of this kid who finds himself on this patchwork planet uh, which is a planet made of all of these other planets and all those other planets had all their own empires so we have like mermaid warriors and we have like insect princesses and we have rat kings and we have elephant people and so, so much of, of the work that I do is about building empires. And so that's why it's a lot of fun to, to work on this. Well, I was just going to say, it feels like we've got the right guy for the job then. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously you've told us quite a bit of things that you're working on. Are there any things that you are working on right now that you can tell us about? Um, not things that happened in the past, but things that you're working on currently right now that people should go and check out of yours. Well, yeah, I mean, so right now I'm working on The Only Living Girl, the second volume of which just came out. And 
in that adventure, I mean, in, in that new volume of stories, we have a new, like sort of a new empire where there's this invisible city ruled by elephant people called the Hierophants. They're like part elephant, part mystic. And rather than trading information, like rather than using like coins for their, their commerce, their whole currency is powered by secrets. So they have all the knowledge in the world academically. They know how to build aqueducts. They know how to build great libraries and door plumbing, whatever you need to know. They have great libraries filled with this information. What they don't have is secrets about one, one another. So they have information, but they don't have knowledge or wisdom about everybody. So if you want to buy a loaf of bread, you may need to trade two secrets with somebody to get it. So, uh, so building that kind of stuff is a lot of fun. So I think that that's where you're going to find most of the sort of empire building, world building kind of stuff that I, I'm currently doing. You'll see some of it to a degree in the work that I did on Ghost Recon for Ubisoft, but not to the same extent. There, there we have different factions, and I think a really right. good empire comes out of factions and and, and sort of a break of thought or a break of philosophy, you know, an ideological difference. So certainly you see some of that work rooted in the work that I did on Ghost Recon, but I don't think you're going to see it as prominently uh, anywhere else with the exception of like Only Living Boy, which I think is the foundation of the the work that I'm doing that's, that's really, truly empire building. That's awesome. So, for all of our guests, we have a fun thing that is our surprise question. Um, and the the other joy is that Chris actually doesn't know what this is going to be. So he is going to be just as surprised. But one of our Patreon supporters, Mindweave RPG, asks this question for you, David. What is the largest creature you or your players have ever fought? Uh, a celestial? Celestials are the world-building creatures, uh, world-building godlike beings. In Marvel, they sort yeah. of responsible for the genetic programming of you know the world. It's the one of the reasons we have like superheroes, essentially, right? Right. During one of my games, I had the players fight a celestial, and celestials have all of this cosmic power. And the way that they could beat the celestial was they had to find three reasons why life was worth living. And so rather than like, so it was an intellectual puzzle. It was like, give me three reasons why I should not destroy this earth. And one of the reasons was a little X-rated. But two of the reasons were like really sweet. It was like one was like pepperoni pizza. (laughs) And the other one was like (laughs) that dog episode of Futurama. (laughs) <laughs> that's so good that's so good and then for co- for context for anyone that's not deeply steeped in the marvel universe the head in guardians of the galaxy that nowhere that they fly into that is the head of a celestial and i think it even in the movie the cinematic universe you lose that context because it always shows it from so far away by the time you they're inside it's so vast that you kind of lose a concept of how large a celestial would actually be that was an awesome answer yeah so that that's probably the largest that's probably the largest creature on record though that will be this evening the players will be fighting mephisto i'm running a a marvel superheroes charity event game 
and tonight the players will be playing like Mephist, fighting Mephisto and Doctor Doom with the powers of Galactus. So no big deal no, whatsoever. No big deal whatsoever. Man. <laughs> so yeah, so I've been running uh, this charity or uh, Marvel Super's role playing game with a bunch of comic creators, and um, it's been it's been a lot of fun. So we're doing we're doing you know John John Callen from uh, one of the writers from Young Justice, Jackson Lansing from uh, Star Trek. James Gray, who is the social media manager and stalwart of Cyberpunk and our Talsorian games. Jamar Nichols, who is a, a Dwayne McDuffie award-winning illustrator and, and writer, artist. So, yeah, so it's, it's just a tremendous amount of fun. And they're playing a bunch of, like, ragtag dealist Avengers who found out that Dr. Doom stole the power of Galactus to attack Mephisto, and they are, they are going to try to stop it. Sounds like you have a pretty great group of people to try and stop that, honestly. Yeah, so I'm, I'm super excited about it. So, you know, I, it's, it's a lot of fun, and I think the, the players are uh, really, really awesome. That sounds like a great group. Well, I think we're really excited to talk um, about Empires. Like, we've already learned you're one of the great people to have on the podcast to talk about that, because it's what you do uh, on a regular basis. And so... I guess my my first kind of question for you, David, um, for our listeners to hear is we often just make worlds and we venture into like a town, right? And we don't really talk about the empire. We talk about the taverns and the blacksmiths and various different like rumors that people might have for people. But why worry about building something bigger than that when it comes to an empire? What what can that add to a game for people? Well, I think that, this stuff is should always feel collaborative, right? And so what we're really trying to do is make it so that these towns feel lived in. And one of the ways that I think I mentioned it before we started recording was that we had just this really, really uh, amazing, in the current game that I'm, I'm playing, our town was made with The Quiet Year, which is a like mm. a $6 PDF that you can get that sort of allows people to get um, to build the town up as it were. And I love it that when we're building towns, we create opportunities that that people can feel really emotionally involved with. Uh, I think the best towns are the towns that really the best worlds and the best games are the ones that, and the best empires are the ones where we feel emotionally connected to. It's interesting because as a player, so often we will play in a town, right? So I'm playing an elf, right? And we're really sort of guessing in a lot of ways about like how the town is set up. If I'm an elf living in Rivendell, uh, for instance, I don't necessarily know what my elven player who has lived in this town his whole life feels. So in, in something like The Quiet Year, you're giving players a level of similitude. You know, we, we need to sort of create that, that love and familiarity with like, this is the town where these characters grew up. This is, so when we're building empires and, and we're thinking about this, we really need to think from, from it, from like the ground up. What is it that is relatable about this town? It's not just that, oh, well, this town has a weapons maker. It's like, well, is this a weapons maker that you know? Is he crotchety? Is he young? You know, is it somebody that we, we know, we love? Like, really give the town 
a level of flavor beyond just like, well, this is this this town has this guy who's a you know same generic whatever. What what we need is traits that that make the people in the town and in the empire and the community come alive. So often mm. people forget about the history of their worlds when they're when they're DMing. It's easy to sort of create narrative shortcuts. It's easy to create um, opportunities that, that, that diminish the roles that townspeople have in, in building an empire. But without that, you lose the, the nuance that makes a, a game great. Um, I think I lost thread a bit of the question, but that's the idea. Is that you no. Really you you did fantastic. No, yeah, I, I was I, say <laughs> if you keep going, my brain's gonna explode. I mean, that would be the only hesitation I would have because my two the two big things I pulled out of it were one, like the idea that every town can't be a frontier town. Like you have to have the establishment of some level of empire, or every town is just this just out on the fringes and they're just completely self sufficient, and that's just not true because you have your players going into bigger towns the other one that you really hit on that i had heard um when i was watching a video from nerd Arky was that no matter what intelligence level or wisdom your character has they will always know more about this world than you as a player could ever know because that's that's where they grew up that's where they have lived their life until this point and i think adapting things like the quiet year or other indie games to better establish that makes for better player character i mean it makes you better as a dm but it it makes for better player characters because now they intrinsically know things about the world that they would have known as a player character like yeah and that's exactly it i think that there's um i think that that's what's really important is is really creating that level of nuance one of the things that i i think about when uh, when i dm is that towns are built on one of three philosophies it's either gold God or glory. It's either they've done it mm. for a religious reason, they've done it to get rich. Hey, I'm going to build this town because it's on a vein of silver or adamantium or vibranium or whatever, unobtainium. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, uh, or it's for glory. It's like, hey, this is, I found this place and it's mine. So if you, you use one of those three things to sort of instigate where, the rest of the path of this town goes, it, it can be really, really powerful. Is it, it was this town founded because of some rel religion? Was it founded because, oh, hey, I can get rich here? Or was it founded because I discovered it and it's mine? You know, so if we're using those three things to instigate it, radically changes the way each town or each empire uh, unfolds itself. And I think that's, that's really powerful. You know? Yeah. Well, I was thinking like, I mean, even if, even if you were thinking from like the town perspective, because I think it's interesting to think like both macro of like massive empires. And then you can do even the micro of like a town itself where like you're in a courtyard, everybody's like funneling into the main kind of marketplace because there's announcement, there's an announcement from the mayor, right. Or the Lord of the town. And they say something to the effect of like, it's, you know, it's time to pay your taxes on the things that we've made, you know, and people all of a sudden start really grumbling. You might not be from this town, but now you get a sense of like this town does not like 
the way that it's set up, right? Like you can you can throw little things in there like that that then can lead to an entire conversation of you discovering this underground cult who now is or this sect of people who's now trying to overthrow the Lord because they're sick of a town that is running specifically for gold. You know, like there's just so many fun elements because you said you said helps make the towns feel lived in and helps people feel emotionally involved. And those things don't come out if you're just like, well, I'm going to walk into a, a tavern and get a drink, you know, like that those elements of the deeper story can help people, I think, become that much more invested because they're feeling some of their own frustrations with maybe the world that we live in you know, that they're bringing into the game and now experiencing in a different way. Yeah. And I, that to me is, that to me is what's really important is that at the end of the day, creating this level of lived in you know? Um, so mm-hmm. kingdom, I think, which is one of the games we talked about pre-show and a quiet year, I think do a really good job. Like an example of, of how we're using a quiet year is that we're playing this D and D game and, and the town is a town that, the players and, and I have built together, you know, and incidentally, just a weird thing that gives this town flavor is that there's just a friendly Kraken that lives in the sea. <laughs> and it's just such a weird thing. Like <laughs> nobody attacks it. It's just lived there for forever. Like it's a Kraken showed up one day and we have a Kraken. Okay. It doesn't eat boats. It doesn't do anything. It's just like, a thing that people talk about that town is it's got like little sells like little kraken miniatures and stuff like that it's just like fun little thing you know that get your picture get your picture painted well, i just kraken. envision, Five envision those pieces. videos where someone rolls up and first off there's like a very very thin small fence and there's just like a full-size grizzly on the other side and they're like hey grizzly and he just like waves back at him i just envision the same thing <laughs> as the kraken like just just waving at people that's so good and for me that's that's, that's what awesome. makes it so fun you know it's just such a ridiculous it's just such a ridiculous thing you know, and, and that to me is that to me is the stuff that makes it fun. You know, it is that that level of lived inness of everything. Well, and I and I think too, that's the thing that keeps people coming back from session to session. You know, like the the lived inness that you're talking about. Cause like I the reason that I come back to games and the reason that my players come back to games is not because we get to like hack and slash things. It's because they really feel like they're connecting with stuff. Right. You know? Like killing things can only go so far. And then it just becomes like, all right, what are we what are we really doing? We're rolling dice. There's nothing really happening. But when you can create a world that's immersive and they can lose themselves in it for a while, like, man, there's so much more that can happen in that world when it comes alive for people. Well, and that's really it is for me. It's not always the people. It's not always the game. It's the people I play with, you know, and totally. can play almost anything. Uh, and we have we've played a lot of ridiculous games but it's the people we play with. And I mean, like in the last session, my friend Chris ran for me. I think we play, we fought like uh, an animated, uh, an animated carpet, you know, and an Mm. animated table. And, you know, those are things are so ridiculous, but it's fun. And I, I love that level of like, we're like in a dwarven community and the, the culture that he's built around the dwarves is really impressive. And I, I love that sort of stuff. I love you do as a GM run across some really challenging things. And, and this is one thing I love to do. And, and also 
something I've, I've noticed as a deficit. When you are world building, 90% of it should be invisible to your players. Mm. Yeah. 90% of it, 10% of it should be like, oh, you're building the architecture. Nobody really cares about the architecture. Like when you look at a house, you're not looking at the steel beams. The architecture supports everything else in the house. When you are building a world, 90% of it should be invisible. The, 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 so if you're doing like a, a genealogy of, of this king to this king to this king, that is important, maybe. But the person it should be most important to is you as the GM, because that gives you the structure. And if you think about those things, they can be game elements later, but you don't need to like overwhelm your player with so much history. Yeah, I think you're I think you're spot on. I think the the 10% that they're going to care about it to use the genealogy is the person that's right in front of them at that moment. The the history that goes behind it could inform why the person is the way that they are, but you don't need to recite that entire history to them unless they go looking for it. You know, if they go to a library to study up on the history of, you know, uh Lord Denethor, right. you know, and figure out about his, you know, sons you know, then you might read all of the history that happened before him to get him to that point. And then it becomes important, you know, to your players because they went and looked for it. But you don't need to spew that off when you're introducing that person into your world just because of the sake of you having put all the time into it. That's boring. Even as a GM, if I played in another game, like I would be bored out of my mind because I just don't care. <laughs> yeah, it becomes information overload. And I right to my poor players uh, more than a couple of times. So the way that I avoid it, however, is that if players are looking for it, I write it all in a secret Twitter account. And the secret Twitter account is how they access the information. They're like, I go to the library. I'm like, oh, you go to the library, do you? And they're like, yeah. So that's where I put in a secret Twitter account everything they need to know that they would find in a library book that they can just reference whenever they want. Yeah, so like, and a modern example of that is when I do it for like my Marvel games, I'll be like, uh, I want to access the Avengers database and see what criminals are on the loose. Like, well, you can. Here's a list of all the criminals that are on the loose, but it's in a secret database. So I'm not like I'm not taking up valuable game time mm -hmm. telling all the players if they want to look up the secret history of they want to look up the secret history of the Imperial Guard or find out. Uh, who all the members of the Sinister 66 are or look up whatever. I've already got that stuff ready for them. So like an example is like I'm running this game right now and it takes place in Latveria, Cap Castle Doom, the whole thing, Doomstock, all that stuff. I have every level of, because one of our players is Ben Grimm and he's been to Castle Doom plenty of times. <laughs> but I did a floor plan of Castle Doom as a series of tweets. And if you want to follow along, it's at Dr. Doom Castle, D-R-D-O-O-M-C-A-S-T-L-E uh, on Twitter. And you can see like I literally just made like every layer uh, uh, a map and just said, hey, on this floor, you're going to find this. On this floor, you're going to find this. If every player but Ben Grimm, you know, uh, wants to figure out what's happening, they can quote unquote access the Avengers logs to find out a blueprint of Dr. Doom stuff. But, you know, it's not it's not important. It, it, it enhances the game rather than taking away from it. And that's ultimately where you sort of need to be with your 
your backstory for your realms is that they need to enhance the story um, and add add information to players who are looking and it adds flavor. It's like flavor text, but what it doesn't do, what it can't do is slow the game down. And I think that's a brilliant way to keep the game flowing because there will be some players that will always want more information. They're just curious. They love it and they'll eat it up. And then there are others that are like, yeah, if I stumble across it, that's fine, but I'm really focused on what's in front of me. And that's a really cool way of doing it. Totally stealing that idea. (laughs) That's brilliant. Yeah. And the secret Twitter account is nice too, because you can always, what I do for my players is um, I tell them, Oh, if you solve this puzzle, you will break the lock. You know what I mean? So it's it's kind of fun to add like a, oh, a wisdom check and solving this quick math problem mm. will be, you know, a way that you can open it up. I guarantee the creators of Twitter did not think that that was how Twitter would be used. But well yeah. done, David, for figuring that out. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, yeah, I think there's some fun elements that we kind of talked about off air that I'd love to talk about on air, just like things around like what components of a kingdom should we think about things being like the rise, the rain and the fall of, of kingdoms. Like what, what elements kind of go into those three categories that we should pay attention to and think through um, for how kingdoms rise, how, what their reign looks like and how they fall. I'll jump, I'll jump in and then definitely let David go some more. The idea of that 90% again, like 90% of the rises, the rains and the falls is on you and knowing that and potentially knowing that history and how they got there, what they're currently doing, and then how potentially how they may fall. Because if you think of either a, a rise or a fall of an empire, that's possibly pivotal to whatever campaign you're running. Because is it happening right now? Is someone taking over someone else? Is what what's happening? Well, I guess, but that would potentially both be the rise and a fall, depending on which empire you are focused on. But having that 10% element be what your players are interacting with and seeing as it goes and the other 90 is just out on the sides. Well, and also thinking about what is the sort of path of succession. Mm. So like I'm doing a, I'm writing a fantasy comic right now that I can't talk a lot about, but the line of power is matriarchal not patriarchal. So it goes from queen to, to princess and down the line through female genealogy rather than like patriarchal success succession. So thinking about like, as you're building this stuff too, like who, who gets the crown, who wears the crown when the, the current authority figure falls. Yeah. Cause I think that's, that's interesting because even if, even if you don't have everything fully fleshed out, like that could be a part of the story where it's like the succession happens because the queen was assassinated and now the next person has to come up whether they were ready for it or not, you know, and what kind of insanity does that cause with somebody who might not be a fully developed leader yet coming up because of maybe it was something your players did and they had adverse consequences or it was something that they were just in the town at the time when it happened and what sort of things would happen if an, if a non-ready princess took the throne from the queen when they were not fully ready or prepared yet. Like that's just right. because of the succession plan that you thought about, like you're not having to create something on the fly necessarily, but you know, like some of the story elements that would happen if a young princess came up who wasn't ready yet, like what sort of mistakes they would make yeah. and what sort of craziness would happen. Yeah, and does the person who is 
yes, yeah, so that kind of stuff is like really sort of throw players for a loop. Like on one hand, yes, the rise and the, the fall of your empires, you know, and the regime changes, you know, like I, you think about like Rome, right? And, and even though their list of emper- emperors is, is weird, <laughs> like, and even if you don't want to go through the full history, you can be like, well, what did they oversee? So if we're doing like, say we're creating our own empire, let's call it Davidonia. All right. So in Davidonia, you'd be like, well, Davidonia, David founded Davidonia. And when he went on, who followed him? Was it Neil? Was it Chris? Is there a power struggle between the two brothers of Neil and Chris for who happens right. to want to go up next? Exactly. <laughs> and I what killed was, him. What First was maybe one what was maybe one innovation that they oversaw and what was one, what was maybe one deficit that they saw. So maybe there was a plague, but also maybe that they discovered gold, mm. you know? So, so even if you don't have to go through the whole span, just think like every, every empire and every regime has its benefits and its deficits, you know? So, you know, Great, Christopher found gold, but uh, Neil's uh, brain discovered the iPhone. You know, well, and I just think that's interesting. Like, if if when they, you know, if if the succession happened during a time of plague, but then they discovered gold shortly after that, like, do you now have a group of people who are living lavish because they came out of a plague and now have access readily to gold? And so you walk into this town, and people are just like partying it up, and they're just living fancy lives or are they like extreme hoarders now of like they're very stingy they're people that don't are very distrustworthy of outsiders who are coming in because they're using their resources you know like those sorts of things because of the succession happening and different elements that have happened in the in the recent history like informs how an entire town will then operate right well and I, I think of building empires and building worlds kind of like an improv game mm-hmm. so it's sort of like you say something and the famous improv gave is, and, you right. know, and this, and this. So it's like, I'm Superman and my world has been destroyed. And, you know, so you, you take the next, whatever you take every step to the next conclusion. So our culture discovered gold and we discovered a lot of gold <laughs> and it tanked our economy. And eventually we like start to take gold for granted. And then eventually we, you know, so really sort of take it to the next level, really sort of extrapolate it out. It's not just like this one thing, but it could be this great, interesting event. I mean, I think about the way that Wakanda is built in the Marvel universe, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, like the vibranium is part of almost everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they've really like, they've become very protectivist about it, you know, and, and down to where they have to like hide their town and their, their whole culture, their whole empire in like an invisible force field. Nobody can find, you know, but why is that? Well, it's because vibranium became known amongst the world wide, you know, how would that tank our economic system? Yeah, I think that and principle is brilliant um, from improv because I think like you can do that in, you know, if you have an hour before your session starts and people are going to a new town for the first time, like you can do that 
in your own mind or collaboratively with your players of just going down the list and saying like, and, you know, to use your example, like they found gold and they found a lot of gold and the economy tanked, you know, like you may walk into a town now that everybody acts a certain way because that was their history. And you came up with that fairly quickly, you know, like you might not know all of the leaders and all this, but you have this underlying history of this town now that people are walking into that affects everything people do. You may walk in and, and people regularly try and get pickpocketed, you know, because there is no money and you're walking in with a ton because this situation happened and their economy is just in shambles right now. You know, like it, it creates all these interesting elements to kind of give it that lividness that you were talking about. Well, I think one of the the other fun – first off, we talked a lot before we got on air. So one of the other great things that David had mentioned is, okay, so we found all this gold and gold is dumb. We don't care. Like it's completely useless. It, it is – you enter this town, it's opulence on a level that you don't understand. But then what is? Is it bread? Is it just silver? Is it copper? Because copper and using it to make bronze and things like that is much more effective than soft gold that now I can't really produce things from. I have a lot of it and I'll make shiny pants. I don't know. But <laughs> like, then what am I using alternatively to start the economy? And does that does that ripple effect? Do, does our and get capitalized and like nowhere cares about gold now? Because it started to just filter out to the rest of your world, not just this empire, but so much was found that it's basically broken the world. Right. And that's and that's what's really crucial is so that when when we're thinking about this stuff from a writing or a GM perspective, it's, it's really sort of thinking like, listen, we are great on gold, man. Gold funds everything. This to you you this may look opulence but to us this is just a natural building material or whatever yeah. but you know what we can really use is some sheep because like i don't know if we'll survive the winter without meat and wool and whatever so that becomes a really interesting thing to think about when we are building these worlds and and i think about you know we we've talked about the line of succession but what we really haven't talked about is like and we've talked a little bit about currency but what we really haven't talked to is either how an empire relates to another empire. Mm -hmm. You know, are they thinking about it from the, these things from other empires is something that must be conquered, something that must be like globalized? Do they believe in like uh, that their sovereign state? You know, like how is it that we are thinking about these empires in, in the way that they relate to one another? And I think that that's really interesting too. So it's not just the, it's not just the the resource management and it's not just the line of succession, but it's also like their socio-political affiliations, you know, like we believe what you believe. Oh, it's in our best interest to trade with you because you have this thing and we don't have this thing, you know. So that to me is all really interesting and something that I think that really makes this all feel, again, like I said before, lived in. Yeah, I, I, I love the aspect of thinking about like, how do different empires interact with each other? Because you may take place in one town for an entire time, but for whatever reason, you have to go to a different kingdom. And like, what are now the cultural norms that you don't know about? I mean, it's even like if you go to a different country around the world here, like there are things that we will do in America that are not socially acceptable in other countries. For example, Correct. I was in the Netherlands one time on a bus, right? 
And one guy turned around to me and tried to say something in Dutch because I'm Dutch and apparently I look Dutch. And I was like, I don't understand what you're saying at all. But he was frustrated because on the uh, public transit system, you don't talk very loud. And two of my friends who were sitting up above in front of me were extremely loud, like and they were pegged very quickly as loud, noisy Americans on the public transit system, you know. So like, what are the social norms between kingdoms even on a smaller scale that might not cause an entire war? But like if you walk into a neighboring town and it's customary to take your weapons off before you go into anybody's home or a tavern and you don't do that, like what sort of things does that cause within the bartender or the person who invited you to stay in their home when you don't take your weapon off before you come in? You know, like those sort of little things too are really fun and interesting to give it that sort of live inness um, for your characters to discover and then causes them to think differently when they're in that town from now on, you know? And do these towns have this kind of like freedom to bear arms, second amendment kind of thing, you know, like carry concealed, like you think about how contentious, it sounds weird, but you think about how contentious that stuff is here. Right. Right. Um, and you think about how can you build it out to the next level? I mean, what we're really asking is, I mean, I know that a lot of people play games as a way to escape, and I totally get that. But also what I was saying before about this level of verisimilitude, like there are going to be people who you go into a bar and they'll be like, oh, no, I'm going to keep my sword on me. Sir, we don't allow swords, you know, and it can be a really nice contentious moment where you're like, oh, my goodness, like, you know. And figuring out why that is and coming up with the idea like this is because the empire is set up this way. These things happened previously that that's why it's not allowed that these cultural norms are because of the way the society has ran for generations like this. It's not. Yeah. And it, it's not a thing where it's just like we think you're a terrible player character. We might. Who knows? But you need to get rid of your sword. It's like, no, that's that's how this is. That that's how we live life. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think it I think it gives people like the more moments of curiosity you can create in your characters, the the deeper the story gets for them. And they'll start asking questions. They'll start to figure out why. And then people are more bought into games when you start to have them ask questions. You can like like we said earlier, you can spew information. Nobody cares. But when they're asking the questions, they're they're bought inedness. I feel like we're doing lots of inedness. Bought inedness is that much more uh, deep for them at that point. Yeah, and that and that to me is ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to give them that level of verisimilitude. One of the things that also I find helps the players, and this sounds almost reverse of what we were saying before. <laughs> is sometimes it's nice to build that town together. So uh, this is a lesson that I learned from the game, The 13th Age, mm. which is a D&D compatible game, is that this level of shared narrative. So for example, I'm your GM and you guys are coming into a town. And like, you guys come over, I, I read some flavor text, blah, blah, blah. You guys come over a rocky ravine and you see a town. What? How big is that town, Christopher? And you'd be like, ah, oh, it's a medium-sized town. Great. And you come upon the, the name of the sign. And, and what does the sign say, Neil? Gold God Glory. <laughs> yeah, that's a great town. <laughs> uh, so this is a town that was founded on a... <laughs> yeah, exactly. A gold um, god of glory. But, yeah, gold god and glory. 
this this was a town that was founded on religious freedom, founded on a gold vein, and founded because they thought it would make people famous. What I meant is that as you as uh, as a GM, you can give your players an opportunity to name the town, to name the people that they might see in the town, to name the name of the bar that they might go to. What does the bar say on the sign? You know, and in a way that gives players that that level of emotional investment. Yeah. You know, and and, and this sounds weird because we're talking about fantasy. But it's also fun to just change stuff up. You know what I mean? Like, how often do we see people coming out of castles in empires riding horses? Right. Right? Why can't we have dwarves coming out of castles riding minotaurs? Because that's the thing they do in this world, yeah. Yeah, you know, like, really change it up. Like, what is the... It's easy to, to prevent, to present the things that we know, but it's also important in a way to change stuff up because the more that we, we don't need to change it so much, but if we do these little things like, no, nope, in these town, in this town, dwarves and minotaurs ride each other and it's cool and it's fun, but we need to, to come up with opportunities that, that make it feel new, that make it feel unique, that don't make it just feel like, well, all human kingdoms and all human kingdoms ride horses into battle. You know, we, we need to come up with things that make it feel different and fun. Yeah, I think in that collaborative model, you're helping people create the 10 um, without you even knowing the 90. Like they don't even need to, they're, they're, they're creating the entire history for you without ever having to create the history. It doesn't even matter what the right. back history is at this point. They're making it up in their mind at that point because like it, it was inspired by them. It's great. Right. And you can go in as the GM. You can fill in the 90 later if they want to explore. Well, we've named these people. We've, we've created the, the 10%. GM, help us create the 90. Well, great. But, I mean, this is where the skills, your improv skills as a GM are important, you know. But really, I find that the more collaborative something is, and it feels like we're sharing it rather than me telling it, becomes more authentic, becomes a better experience. And in terms of how empires fall, there are so many great ways to do it. My favorite <laughs> is fire, though occasionally explosions. Yeah. <laughs> I love things blowing up in my games, but <laughs> I just love it. But also there are so many different ways a, a society can fall, not just because of, of bad management, which is common, or like destruction with dragons and, and fire and whatever, but there are also cool things you can do, like the the town went invisible. The town invited wizards in for the first time in a thousand years and a wizard cast a spell and now the town's like Brigadoon. You know what I mean? Like it, it only shows up every thousand years or whatever. There are so many fun, quirky things you can do with why a town has fallen or disappeared that all become really great opportunities to explore for adventures. So um, I love doing that stuff. I created one time a, a town like with some of this history stuff in mind that was really flourishing and somebody didn't like the fact that the town was flourishing. And so they destroyed half of it or so they thought they created a massive sinkhole in like a quarter to a third of the town and it fell to the bottom and this society didn't die. It was like just transported to the bottom of the sinkhole. And then this society just evolved and shaped and figured out how to mine and create a new sort of underground economy 
that was still alive, but the sinkhole was so massive, nobody could ever climb down it and figure out what happened to the people that were down there. It was just like, and that changed the landscape of the entire town. Like the town just now like was very remorseful every time they went over there, you know, like even hundreds of years later, they just thought about that spot. Like, and it, it drove them to not be greedy at that point, even though those people were still alive down at the bottom and had drastically shaped, uh, changed the way that they lived. Like those sorts of things, it, it doesn't, it didn't fall. It just changed significantly, you know? Right. Well, and that's the other thing is that you can have the thing about empires is that they can be vast. Mm-hmm. They don't need to be localized. Right. You know, so you think about the, the British empire was like parts of Canada, you know, and the East Indies and part of, so, so say you have the game where most of the empire has fallen on a mainland, but its satellite empires still exist. And they may have lost track of the, the king or the queen or whatever uh, because of floods or blizzards or natural disasters, but they're still going about their lives. So you could easily still have like them believing you get to a town and you enter the town and be like, behold, it's the, ho- the holy woven empire. I thought the woven empire was destroyed. What do you mean? We are part of this, you know, and how that town reacts to this news that. Uh, I'm sorry to tell you this, but the Wolven Empire was destroyed by dragons 10 years ago. What? You know, like there's a there's a lot of fun stuff you can do about changing, having a a truth or having a secret that just totally uproots uh, an empire. And you talk about the way something might fall is is that level of losing confidence with the the, you know, hierarchy. I, all that stuff is is really fun and so interesting to play with in terms of like just storytelling possibilities, you know? So it, it's a lot of fun to really think about pushing your ideas from a non, non-narrative, persp- uh, not non-narrative, but not, you know, like pushing the boundaries in terms of your storytelling opportunities. It, it has to be, I think the best empires are ones that really build from this non-Western approach to empire building. My my brain hurts in the best way possible. <laughs> but that that does lead us to what I always feel is our most important question. David, where first, thank you. Thank you for yeah. coming and spending some time and just giving us a small piece of the wealth of knowledge. But where can people go to get more from you? Email, website, all that. Yeah, uh, you can find me at davidgallagher.com. You can listen to, um, I'm also on, uh, I've got all my social media buttons there. I speak a lot on, uh, I speak a lot on Twitter. <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at David Gallagher. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, my books are available on Amazon. Um, also bookshot.org. Um, and yeah, and then uh, Ghost Recon is in stores now. You can pick it up for the PlayStation 4, the Xbox. Uh, and yeah, it was, this was a lot of fun. Thank you guys so much for having me. Of course. Always, always a pleasure. We just want to thank David again for coming, sharing his time, sharing his mind, and just helping us better understand empires. If you want to get a hold of us and let us know how you've added empires into your game, you can always email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this episode and see fit, head on over to Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice and leave us a review and we'll read it on air. 
As always, you can follow us over on Twitter at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block or like us on Facebook. So you keep track of us and see all the other things that we're doing. But as always, the Dungeon Masters block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network, where you can check out other amazing shows like Detentions and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons and Daughters, Diamnastics, and more. But as always, we just want to thank you for listening to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game. I'm DM Neil. Good night and good luck. And as always, keep on Dungeon Mastering. Neil, did I ever tell you the story about how I became an RA in college? No. So one of my professors was on the board for um, getting people or on the RA review board. And um, he was a total nerd, loved D&D through and through. And so I submitted my actual resume to the or application and resume to the the board. And then I wrote him a specific one and mailed it to his house in an like a manila envelope that was my D&D 3.5 character sheet for who I was and what my skills were and stuff. And That's he ate amazing. it up. <laughs> he loved it. <laughs> it was my favorite job application ever. Yeah. Yeah. I hated the job, but loved the application. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was one of those things where everybody was like, yeah, we're going to have a room and board paid for. And then you get through at the end and you're like, not worth it. Yeah. <laughs> not worth it. Oh, everybody thinks you're a snitch now. Nobody likes you. That was once your friend because you're different now. Oh man, the life of an RA. Yeah. Looking back, it was nice for the loans, but that year of just like nobody really like wanting to invite you in on pranks and trusting you anymore because you were the RA was just like, well, yep. Maybe I'll maybe I should have just taken on six or seven more hours a week somewhere working and enjoyed myself <laughs> a little bit more. <laughs> oh well. Goodbye.